0: With Sheelix and another fantastic addition to our series, You Do Belong in Science. So, today we have Sherry Messersmith. Sally, tell us all about this awesome guest we have. You guys, I
1: am super stoked that Sherry is going to be a guest on our podcast today. Sherry had a decades long career teaching developmental math at colleges and community colleges, um, she was also a high school math teacher. And She has an extensive experience as a math teacher. More recently in her career, Sherry has transitioned to a new role as an author of math textbooks for students studying developmental math at the college level. Through Sherry's textbooks, as you guys will hear in the episode, she's incorporated not only high quality math content, but also teaching students to develop study skills and how to thrive in college. You guys are going to love this episode about Sherry, which goes from like her beginnings as an elementary school math star, all the way through to her current career, where she helps students develop soft skills to ensure that they're equipped to be able to learn how to learn math and everything else. Um, I know you guys will all learn something from Sherry's episode, whether you're learning to improve as a teacher, to improve as a learner, or to just like be inspired about Sherry's awesome career because her story I think really shows how staying true to your many passions can help you fuel your own career success. Because Sherry, she has kept all her passions in the back of her mind. And at many points in her career, one of her passions has been able to come and like really help her career expand and thrive. Right. Stay tuned for after Sherry's interview. And we have the first of our many listener stories about finding belonging in science to share with you guys. So like this listener story, it's amazing. You will relate. So you guys, welcome to our episode with Sherry Messersmith let's roll the tape
0: yes let's do it hello everyone and welcome to another episode of double she and it's part of our special series you do belong in science I'm Kayla and I'm
1: Sally and we're super excited to invite with us today Sherry Messersmith to speak with us about topics of belonging in science and her experiences as a math teacher and now a math textbook author and she's done so much in this space and we're really excited to hear her perspective on creating belonging communities within mathematics. Sherry, thank you for joining us on the podcast. We're so happy to have you. This is going to be amazing.
0: Well,
2: thank you. I'm super excited to be here.
0: Oh, great. Um, So maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about your career trajectory, and your experiences in math,
2: and uh, what you're doing right now. Okay. Well, I'm going to start kind of a long time ago. Take us on the journey. Okay, cool. (laughs) So to give you a little bit of perspective, okay, um, I graduated high school in 1981. So um, I was born in 1963. And when I was in school, when I was in elementary school, I was always a good student at pretty much everything except for art. I hated (laughs) art. I'm just not like – I just don't feel like I'm a creative person in that way. But I was a pretty good student at everything else. And I was super nerdy and kind of chubby. I loved to read world book encyclopedias, and I devoured every Nancy Drew book that existed. And the boys used to pick on me in elementary school. And honestly, my way of getting back was I wanted to kick their butts in math because math was such a male dominated, you know, subject area um, that for the most part, the best students in math, even in elementary school, were boys. And my form of revenge was to better them on all of my math tests. And that that really, it was a motivator for me. It might sound strange, but that motivated me to do my best. Along with that, I also loved to write. And when I was in fourth grade, I remember distinctly I wanted to be a writer. And it was partly because of these um, writing assignments that we had every week in our class. Um, And also, kind of an important point in my education was I started taking French in school when I was in fifth grade, and it was more formal in sixth grade, and my love of French, my love of writing continued on, continues to this day, um, but, you know, I was also very talented in math, so when I went away to college, and I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, I was initially a French major, but I knew I really wanted to be a teacher, and I thought to myself, well, if I want to be sure that I get a job as a teacher, and I wanted to teach high school, if I wanted to be certain that I would get a job, then I I would teach math because I knew at that time, probably like now, math teachers were in high demand. Mm-hmm. And so I majored in math, my minor was chemistry, and I decided to be a high school teacher. Well, My parents were furious. Mm. They did not want me to go into teaching because I graduated in like the top 2% of my class and they thought I was wasting my talents by becoming a high school teacher when they felt I could do whatever I wanted to do. But I knew that was what I wanted to do. And so I just went along with it. And you know, when you're a college student, it's kind of hard to say no to your parents, especially when they're paying for college, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I did it, and I'm glad that I did it. And so right after undergrad, I taught um, high school math and chemistry for two years. And then I, I always knew I wanted to go back to graduate school, so my husband and I headed back to the University of Illinois, and I got a master's in mathematics, And that's when I really started to be interested in helping and teaching students from impoverished areas. Hmm. And I became involved in a summer program called the Summer Bridge Program, and it was open to students who went to high schools that were not as great as others, But these students were the best in their class there. However, if you were to compare their ACT scores with the ACT scores of the general population at the University of Illinois, um, there really was no comparison. You know, these students just didn't do very well on tests. And so they would come for six weeks in the summer and take intensive math, reading, and writing courses. And I loved it because um, they were eager to learn, but they also felt very marginalized for many reasons. And one of the reasons was most of those students felt like, you know, I'm terrible at math. I can't do math. I don't have a math brain. I've never been able to do it and I'll never be able to do it. And that's where as a teacher, you really come to learn that so much of teaching And I think especially a subject like math or science, subjects that are not exactly the most popular with students, a lot of it's about psychology. It's about psychology and helping students to build confidence, to build belief in themselves. And no matter how small their successes are, little successes in the beginning help to build for bigger successes later on. And when the students start to believe that they can succeed, they start to succeed. Hmm. And I also always felt that it was part of my job to help them learn how to learn. Because I think that was another thing that those students didn't quite understand. Because a lot of those students, and honestly, students at universities, community colleges, everywhere will say, well, but I, I, I studied for that test. I studied for two hours for that test. I don't know why I failed. But then as a teacher, it's my responsibility to ask, well, how did you study for that test? Tell me, describe to me how you studied. And you come to realize that maybe what they're doing is not the most efficient way to go about studying for the test. And so then you address it, you address it with the class, you talk about what they do, you talk about some strategies that will help them to become more successful. And so I think that's a very important part of teaching math or science or anything. Hmm. And that is to help students learn how to learn. Because a lot of them are not taught that explicitly. And if they learn those skills, they can be more successful. Wow. Well, that's awesome. And it perfectly segues to our next question,
0: which is uh, in this process of wanting to teach people how to learn,
2: is this how you – how did you transition into writing textbooks? Okay. So after the University of Illinois – and I, I was a student there as a master's student for two years. And then I taught there for three years mm-hmm. as a lecturer. Um, that After that is when I began teaching at a community college. I spent 17 years at the College of DuPage, which is in um, Glen Ellyn, Illinois, in the west suburbs of Chicago. When I went to the community college, I felt like that was the right place for me. Mm-hmm. Because I loved high school students, but I really hated all the administrative junk one must put up with mm-hmm. as a teacher in, in a high school. So the community college was kind of a perfect balance of your students, who a lot of them really still do have kind of that high school mentality. Mm-hmm. But on the administrative side, professors don't have sort of all of the stuff that they had You're to not chaperoning up. the homecoming dance yes yes someone's not looking over your shoulder every second of the day um so I, I really loved the community college and i when i was there i taught everything from developmental math developmental math is the kind of nice way to say remedial math for college and different colleges define that in different ways But overall, that would encompass arithmetic, yes, from like 27 plus 82, arithmetic through intermediate algebra, Mm -hmm. which is approximately high school algebra 2. That's developmental math. That span. So I taught everything from developmental math through the calculus sequence. And while calculus was much more interesting to teach from the math perspective, Developmental math, I felt, was more rewarding to teach and more challenging to teach because, for the most part, the room is full of students who do not want to be there, Hmm. who think that, well, many of them were not very successful in math during their K-12 through careers, and so they don't think that they can be successful. And so the challenge with teaching developmental math students is that, number one, you have to make them believe they can do it. Because if you don't think you can do it, you're not going to do it. And why even try at that point? <laughs> and that's their, that's their attitude. Like, yeah. I can't do this. Why should I bother? Why do I bother? And so that's when one of the things I did within my classes was, you know, I, I would get really frustrated. And I would just say to myself, ugh. Why can't they like, why don't they know their multiplication facts? Why don't they know that eight times seven is 56? And so I would get really frustrated, but then I would stop myself and think, well, what can I do to help them? Because being frustrated doesn't do any good. So how can I help them? And so that was kind of this first basic skills worksheet I came up with. And it was just 30 multiplication facts that I gave out to them in class, but I used it in a very, very certain way. And then when I ran into other arithmetic deficiencies among my introductory algebra and intermediate algebra students, I would do the same thing. Like, I'd be like, oh, my God, why don't they know this? And then I would say, okay, well, what can I do to help? And I would come up with another activity And we would do that activity in class and so my purpose in developing these arithmetic activities was to help them improve their basic arithmetic skills because if you don't have good arithmetic skills you cannot make the connection to algebra because algebra is just a generalization of arithmetic for the most part so that was my purpose however What I found was that it helped build their confidence, and that was huge. So, you know, I'd hand out the multiplication worksheet on day one. They would have a minute to do it. I would say stop. i walk around the class, read through the answers, kind of eyeball how people did, and that was it. I wouldn't collect them or anything. It was just an exercise. And I would let them know, hey, you need to know these. But if you don't know them very well, practice, you know, with flashcards or now it's practice with an app on your phone or on your computer or something. And I said, but we're also going to be practicing in class. And so the goal is to just get better. So the next day, they come in and I give them another worksheet. So it it ended up that All of my basic skills worksheets had six different versions. But anyway, so I'd give them another version the next day. And I would conduct it the same way. They have one minute. Then I read the answers. I walk around, see how they did. And I would make it a point. If I saw, for example, that on the first day, someone only got like 10 of them right. But the second day, that person got like 15 right or something. I would say, hey, Sally, awesome job. I see that you did better today. That's great. See, if you practice, you will get better. Wow. And that was an unintended consequence of these exercises that I created, but it was, it was huge. And it was a very important part of the success of a lot of my students, because I would always try to point out to them, you are practicing, you're getting better. There's a correlation here. And then they start to believe that, hey, I can do this. And as little as that success might seem, little successes get you big successes later on. And so my students would gain confidence and they would see themselves getting better. And they're like, wow, maybe I can do math. And then they would, you know, they would see for themselves the correlation between, I'm coming to class every day because I had a super, super strict kind of attendance policy but through my homework um, where they couldn't send their homework with a friend and they couldn't make up quizzes because I give a quiz every Friday and if I didn't give a quiz, they blew it off. So, you know, you're always trying to, like, outsmart them one step ahead. (laughs) Um, But they, they really saw the correlation between if I practice, I improve, and I can do this. Mm-hmm. And so your question about the textbook. So then I was invited to a symposium mm-hmm. held by McGraw Hill. And it was like 15 faculty members from around the country who would come together to discuss issues and developmental math. Mm-hmm. And so it was a whole weekend. And I was super impressed. They have to say, because they did not show us one product, which was surprising. It really was for them a research endeavor like Mm. we want to hear from faculty what's going on in their classes what can we as publishers do to help the instructors and the students and is there anything Mm. these instructors are doing that helps their students right and so that's how they learned about some of the activities that I created Mm. and so at the end of the weekend um one of the McGraw-Hill folks asked if I would be interested in shooting videos for some of their then-current textbooks. So I kind of started doing work that way. I shot videos for some of their books. But then they also asked to see some of the activities that I had talked about. And so I was like, yeah, sure, okay, totally naive. And so when I got home, I mailed them. Some of the activities that I had created. And a couple weeks later, someone called me back and said, We like the video work you're doing, and you know, we love the activities that you made. And through what we learned about you at the symposium, you know, we want to ask, did you ever think about writing a textbook? And my exact reaction was, <laughs> No, because I hadn't. Yeah. It never occurred to me, ever. Yeah. And they said, well. You know, this is our business. This is what we do. We know what to look for. And we think we have you have a book in you. <laughs> and and so we would like you to go to our website, download the the prospectus form, which is basically a proposal form. You know, we'd like you to write a proposal for a textbook. And I, I was still, like, dumbfounded. Is that just?
0: Is that how it goes? Is it just, like, people write prospect, or proposals for books, and then you may or may not get hired to write that book?
2: Um, that's one way. I've come to learn that a lot of people have already written a manuscript or have written a portion of a manuscript, mm-hmm. and they submit that. And that's, you know, kind of how it happens. Although now in the digital age, it's changing a lot. Okay. However, it's my understanding that what happened to me was fairly unusual. So, okay. but I didn't know they any They identified better. you as a rising star, and they were <laughs> I, I I had no clue. I was clueless. Okay. So I was still, you know, they're like, oh, we, you know, go online, download the proposal, and submit it to us, you know. And I was like, oh, I don't know, because at the time, and this was probably about 2003. Okay and at the time, my daughters were in fifth grade and ninth grade. I was a full-time math professor at the College of DuPage, and of course, as most moms, um, when my children got home from school, I was then a taxi driver, you know, (laughs) taking them all over creation to basketball and art and soccer and all of that, and I thought, you know, how, how would I ever fit this in my life? And so I said, well, wait till I'm done shooting this round of videos and then I'll think about it. So as soon as I finished the videos, someone from McGraw Hill called me up again. They're like, okay, you're done. Please book us. Uh, you know, you're going to write that prospectus. And I was like, okay, whatever. Sure. So I downloaded the form. I got out a spiral notebook. Like I said, this was about 2003. And I was astonished that once I started reading the proposal form and answering their questions, it was so incredibly easy. Like everything just flowed and there were questions like, what is your philosophy of education? What do you see your project being? How would your book be different from and better than competitors Mm. who are your competitors and why so they were actually pretty thought-provoking questions Mm -hmm. but um it just it came easily and once I typed it up it ended up being maybe 16 pages or something and it was at that point that I said hmm maybe I can do this and so they got my prospectus. They had me work a little bit, like identifying more clearly my competitors and a little bit of stuff about that. And then they said, okay, we want to sign you. So I hadn't written a word of a book, but they said, yeah, we, we, we'd like to sign you. And I said, well, I have to think about it. <laughs> and all of my friends were like, what do you mean you have to think about it? What's there to think about? Like McGraw-Hill is offering you a publishing contract. You know, and I said, "Well, I have children. I have a full-time job. Both of those are full-time jobs. You know, teaching's a full-time job and having children's a full-time job. How am I going to make this work?" And then I'll never, I will never forget this. It was early December of 2003, and I had heard about this a book either online or in the like the New York Times or something. And the book was called Road Trip Nation. And it was about these two college students who went to Pepperdine. One came from a family of doctors, the other from a family of lawyers. Consequently, each of those young men was expected to follow in their family's respective paths. But they didn't really want to do that. But they didn't know what they wanted to do. So... They decided one summer, might have been after like their sophomore year of college or junior year, I'm thinking sophomore. They decided, well, what we'd really love to do is we'd like to know how people got cool jobs. We want to know how does a director or a producer of Saturday Night Live get that job? Mm. How did Howard Schultz, start starbucks how did the owner of cliff bar start his company Hmm. so what they did was they identified people they viewed as having cool jobs and they wrote to a bunch of companies magazines newspapers publishers to try to get funding to spend a summer interviewing these people and finding out how they got their cool jobs and then like um Blogging along the way, and also writing articles along the way, and finally, someone agreed to fund them, and so they bought a, you know, like a Winnebago, a camper, and they set off across the country, and they interviewed a bunch of people that had these cool jobs, including someone from Saturday Night Live, including the maker of the Cliff Bar, and what I I read this because. I feel as a a teacher, it's my responsibility to help students in any way. And a lot of students don't know what they want to do. And so Mm -hmm. I initially bought this book to keep in my office to share with my students. You know, someone Mm -hmm. came in and they're like, well, you know, I'm really into, like, I think I want to be an engineer, but I'm really into, like, motocross biking. And this is true. I had a calculus student like this. (laughs) He was very interesting, super smart guy. But they would like, you know, is there any way I could combine these interests? And so my intention in getting this book was I'd read it, but I'd loan it out to students, and maybe it would help them think about things. Mm -hmm. But I read this, and it, the message from these people who had the so-called cool jobs was a lot of them left their traditional jobs. Hmm. And their attitudes collectively were, if I don't try, I'll always wonder what if. Hmm. And so after I read this book, I just decided to write that in there. I have to say yes to the book contract nice. because if I don't, I'll always wonder what if. Yeah. And if it's successful, that's great. And if it's not successful, well, that's okay because I tried, you know? So that was December. <clears throat> and so I called McGraw Hill up and I said, okay, yes, I will. I will write a book signed my contract in February of 2004 and started writing at the beginning of March of 2004. And so I taught full time and wrote and, you know, took care of the kids Um, from March of 2004 until my last semester of teaching, which was May of 2010. Hmm. I think by May of 2010, I had maybe five books published wow. or something like that. And then McGraw Hill came to me and said, We would like you to write a completely different series of books. And we want you to write five of them at once. Oh, and yeah. And so, that's awesome. <laughs> right. That sounds <laughs> and, more full time. <laughs> yeah. So, kind of upon mutual agreement, that's when I left teaching because <laughs> I knew that I could not write five books and teach full time and take care of the kids. And so, something I had to give. And so, I left teaching and I've been writing full-time since then. And so your latest series of five books, I think is the one that
1: incorporates the power learning. Can you talk briefly about what power learning is and how
2: like you use it in your textbook? So we call it intermediate algebra with power learning or pre-algebra with power learning. So when I started writing, I was a sole author. And for maybe the first eight books or something like that, I was sole author,, mm-hmm. and it was just math and and that was fine, but you know, I wanted to figure out a way to somehow incorporate in the books this idea of helping students learn how to learn hmm. because if students don't know how to learn, they're not going to learn anything right. I think that's the biggest obstacle for most people learning math to be honest so i I met a um Another McGraw-Hill author, his name is Dr. Robert Feldman. He's a psychology professor and researcher at UMass Amherst, and he's currently, like, deputy chancellor of the university. And he is an expert in how people learn, and that's been one of his um, career-long areas of research. So I met Bob, and I learned about his power learning framework, which is based upon a lot of his research. I tried it out in the classroom and I felt that the power framework was a way to more formalize how I teach students how to learn. It's a way to formalize it in a book because Mm -hmm. doing something in the classroom is one thing. Incorporating it into a textbook is a completely different thing. Bob asked himself kind of two questions. He asked himself, first of all, do successful goal achievers have anything in common? And a little more specifically, do successful learners have anything in common? So he studied the literature, he studied thousands of people and he learned that successful goal achievers and successful learners all do five things. First of all, they prepare, which means that they explicitly set a goal. Okay, so for example, let's say that I want to lose 10 pounds, which I always do. Then prepare for me would be to say something like, I want to lose 10 pounds by the end of May, okay? The second thing that Bob discovered successful goal achievers and learners do is that they organize, and that means they organize the physical and mental tools that they need to achieve their goals. So going back to the losing weight example, okay? If I want to lose 10 pounds, What might be some physical things I need to achieve the goal and mental things I need to achieve the goal? Like join a gym and throw away all the cookies. Okay, exactly. Like go through your cabinets, (laughs) throw away the junk food, join a gym. What else might you need to do? Oh, my. Plan on packing your lunch more often. Okay, so bringing a healthy lunch as opposed to going out for fast food. Okay, so those are some examples of what you would do to organize. Okay, then... The successful goal achievers or learners, they actually do the work. So that means do the work that needs to be done to achieve the goal. So now if I want to lose weight, I am going to exercise. I'm going to eat more healthily. Next, evaluate what you have done. So I might get on the scale. Did I lose 10 pounds or did I not lose 10 pounds? Okay. And the final thing that these successful goal achievers and learners do is they rethink. Hmm. So they go back and they think, all right, if I achieved my goal, what did I do to get there? Because if I need to do something similar again, I want to use those same strategies. But if I didn't achieve my goal, I need to ask myself, why not? Did, you know, what, why not, basically? So, with the weight example, if I lost my 10 pounds, I'd be like, yes, awesome. What did I do? Well, I was really good about sticking to my healthy eating. I stuck to my exercise plan, etc. But if I didn't lose my 10 pounds, I also want to think about that. Well, mmm. I, you know, I didn't go to the gym as much as I wanted. I ate too much fast food, you know, whatever. But I also kind of want to think then, you know, well, was that an unrealistic goal? Did I set too short of a time frame? So you just you just want to rethink. And so the five steps that he found successful goal achievers have: prepare, organize, work, evaluate, rethink. Mm-hmm. The first five letters. Of those words spell power and so he called it the power learning framework and the beauty of it is that you can use it to achieve any goal Hmm. anything you can use it to be successful in your math class you can use it to become better at taking a math test you can use it to become better at reading your math textbook. And that's a huge thing for students because too many students, if they do read their math textbook at all, they'll just pick it up and read it like a history book hmm. or a psychology book. Hmm. But that's not how you read a math textbook. When you read a math textbook, you should be writing out the examples as you are reading them hmm. and other things like that. And so the power framework can be used to help instructors teach and to help students learn these study skills or student success skills. We also use it in the textbooks to structure our um, chapters and sections according to this is what prepare means, this is what organize means, etc. Um, so what we have done then is we have taken all of these very important study skills, like time management, how to take a math test, how to do your math homework, which is huge. A lot of students don't really understand the best approach to doing their math homework. Um, you know, stuff like this, how to take better notes. And in every chapter now of every book, we use the power framework to teach these study skills. So each chapter has a study skills theme. Hmm. And the beauty of it is that instructors have these materials built into the book if they want to use them. And then they're available there for the student. So it's not a separate book. It's not all of the study skills in one chapter of the book Mm -hmm. because – you know, if you do them at the beginning of the semester and then you move on, psychologically, the students are thinking, OK, we're done with that now. Yep. Right. Whereas if it's integrated, as we've done, then it's viewed as being important throughout the semester. So I started off as a sole author. But then when I met Bob and learned about what he does, I brought him on as my co-author. And I now have a digital co-author because, you know, you, I've learned that as an author... One must continually evolve. And so now I have um, a digital co-author, Natalie Vega Rhodes, who is from Lone Star College, Kingwood in Texas, in the Houston, Texas area. And so she does a lot of the digital work. She does the videos now. And we team up to create supplements as well where I will write them and then she does the digital end of it. Awesome. So I think it's very clear that both from your teaching career
1: and from now your textbook writing career, you have identified and worked really hard to address issues that, you know, students come into the classroom and they aren't always prepared with the basics that they need to succeed in your case in developmental math. But I think that that's true, like in all classes, even at non-community college settings, like at universities. But um. I think a lot of professors might say, like, that's not my job. Like, they're in college. Like, they should know how to take a test. Like, they should know how to, like, do their homework. Like, that's not my job. Have
2: you encountered this kind of attitude? Yes. So I have certainly heard this. You're absolutely right. And I have to say, though, as time has gone on, I hear it less. Hmm. Hmm. Because I do think a lot of professors are coming to realize that if... I really want my students to be successful. I might have to touch upon some of these so called soft skills that I may not have done before or that I may not have recognized hmm. as being part of the root of the problem. And that's where, um, you know, incorporating these materials into the book is very important because. A chemistry teacher is trained in chemistry. A math teacher is trained in math. Mm. Most people are not trained in how to teach students to learn. That wasn't part of our training. And so there, I've also encountered people who've said, I've wanted to do that, but I don't know how. Mm. Or I don't have the materials to do that. And that's where I think our books have become very valuable. And you know, even though I'm no longer teaching in the classroom, I still feel like I'm teaching. Right. Because the books are used all over the country. So there are thousands of students using them. But it's also helping instructors, it's giving instructors new ideas for new approaches to subject matter. Hmm. It's also giving them materials um, and content for helping students learn how to learn. It is kind of a fine line because some professors will think, oh, this book has study skills in it. It must be a watered-down book. Mm. However, I always tell them, well, it's not because the math that's in here is exactly the same math and the same level of rigor that was in my initial series of books Mm -hmm. that turned into the books with the study skills incorporated. So the math didn't change, you know, the explanations, they're Mm -hmm. all the same. Most of the examples, you know, are all the same except for the applications, which I update with every edition. But The math hasn't changed. I think we've just improved the books to meet the needs of today's students, many of whom just lack study skills. And you're right. It's not just a community college issue. It's a university issue as well. So it applies to everybody. So
0: one uh, one question I have is I know personally I enjoy working on a problem or uh, and, or enjoyed working on homework when I had some sort of vested interest in it, even if it was as simple as, like, I just want to complete them all. But sometimes it was more, it was bigger, like, I'm really interested in this topic because of some personal experience that I've had. How important is that compared to just building confidence in students? And do you try to connect it with their lives at all? Does that make a difference? What's really the key drivers for students?
2: It does make a difference, and it's something that I'm very conscious of, Mm -hmm. especially in what students would call word problems or Mm -hmm. story problems or applications, you know, whatever you want to call them. So this is another long story, so I'll try to make it very short. But early on, I hired a former student of mine to be my researcher to write word problems. Hmm. And so he had been my calculus student. His name is Bill. He had been my calculus student. And I just went to him and I said, hey, you know, I'm at the point. Well, first of all, I said, hey, I'm writing a math book. Would you like to, you know, do some work for me? And I said, you know, I'm at the point where I need to write a lot of word problems. But I want real world or interesting sorts of word problems. You know, are you would you be willing to do that research for me, you get me the information, I'll write the problems. And he said, sure. So he was 19 when he started doing this. So, you know, I start getting back his information. And what was really cool was that because he was 19, the kinds of information he was looking up is information that I never would have thought of, because I was in my 40s by then. Do
0: you have any examples of Oh,
2: yes. So do you guys know the or the movie Harold and Kumar go to White Castle? Yeah. OK, <laughs> so there's kind of a double entendre Harold and Kumar problem on in there. Um, You know, it's it, from the math perspective. It is your typical sort of word problem. But um I think I call it Carol and Momar go to White Castle. And and it goes on from there. And. When one of my friends at my at my school when I was teaching, she was teaching from it and she said they were doing this problem in class and all of a sudden the students started laughing. And she said, "What's so funny?" And they said, "Well, don't you understand like what this problem is about?" And she's like, "No." And they were like, "Did you ever hear of the movie Harold and Kumar go to White Castle?" And she's like, "No." But her comment to me was, "You know, students hate word problems. Of all the things in math, the things they hate the most are word problems. And she said, that made the moment funny. It made it less intimidating. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been one of the things that faculty note about the books, is that a lot of the word problems are age appropriate. Although, you know, Especially at a community college, you have students of all ages. But, you know, I think for the most part, your students are like from 18 to maybe 25, 26. You know, it does depend on where you are. But, um, so I really try hard with the applications to write them based upon information that will be interesting, funny, relevant to them. And it takes something that they hate and it might make them laugh. And that makes a huge difference in the mood of the class and their approach to things. And the other thing is, so I mentioned French way at the beginning. I still study French to this day. I love to travel. And one thing that's naturally happened is, well, first of all, I'm still like super geeky and I see math everywhere. And so when we travel... We might be on a tour, for example, of the Jameson Distillery in Dublin, Ireland. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. (laughs) No, that's actually my favorite problem of all of my books. So we were on a tour at the Jameson Distillery in Dublin, and the tour guide was telling us how, you know, a certain amount of this liquid is put in these barrels. And every year, 2% of the liquid evaporates. And in my head... I'm just like, ding, 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 ding. That's an exponential function. So I start asking her all these questions. And then afterwards I asked her more questions and I wrote a a word problem, like it's like four parts or something um, based upon that information because that can be described by an exponential function. Hmm. And that's where, you know, when students say, well, you know, what would you ever use this for? there's, there's a perfect real world example. Yeah. And then a lot of stuff too, like another one of my kind of favorite ones, because I'm guilty of this is about the number of views on YouTube. This girl's watching kitty videos, puppy videos, and pig videos. And I try to incorporate that in there so that they might find it a little bit more interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. what
0: Great ideas.
1: So you've spoken a little bit about the kind of things that professors and textbook authors can do to sort of make the environment of learning more welcoming to students who don't come super prepared to be in that environment. But do you have any thoughts about what universities or departments can do structurally to increase the belonging of students within STEM or math or whatever
2: field they're trying to learn in? Let's let's just say kind of on a departmental level, a lot of schools do try to have maybe activities for their students or you know get-togethers, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure how many students, especially undergraduates, so imagine if you are required to take one math class or you are required to take one science class right. that you're not super thrilled about. Imagine that that department organized some kind of activity. What are the chances of that student going? I think that's pretty low. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's super important that professors try to engage their students within their classroom because they have to be in the classroom. So what I do think departments or institutions as a whole can do is offer faculty development workshops for their professors Hmm. and talk about. So here are some statistics on today's students. Here are profiles of today's students here's how students have changed compared to 20 or 30 years ago. How can you in your classroom help these students learn? How can you help them gain more interest within that subject area? Because if they do become more interested, they will probably do better because they're going to work harder and they're going to come to class. So again, You know, when you look at colleges and universities and you have all these extremely smart people in their departments, yes, they may have been trained in chemical engineering or in physics or in math, but how many of those people have ever been trained in any kind of educational pedagogy? Mm. Probably not many. Right. And so I think that's one thing they could do is offer an hour or two hour like workshop and you know because i i always felt going to those kind of things if i came away with one piece of information that i could use in my classroom that would help my students Mm -hmm. then that was a success because it was something that i didn't know before
0: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah that makes a lot of sense Mm. awesome I know that
1: you've definitely, besides your math textbook authorship, you have really engaged in your passions about France and travel. Um, Do you want to tell us about like your other projects that you have going on and what we can look forward
2: to from Sherry in the upcoming future? (laughs) Yeah. Well, as I said earlier, I've always had this love of French and with, you know, I've always loved to write. And so when I became a textbook author, that blended my love of math with my love of writing um, but I continue to study French to this day. It's kind of my fun thing. It's my non-math thing. And I have ideas for a book that would require me, if I'm so lucky, to go spend some time in France because I want to write this book um, loosely about France. And one thing that I've learned is that seemingly Disparate topics really all help each other. Hmm. Because I think that, for example, as a math or any textbook author, the wider your interests are, the more information, for me, I can bring to the table in terms of writing the word problems, so to speak, you know? Um, because another another thing I love to do is cooking, and there's a lot of math in cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, I know about cooking, I know I, I travel a lot, so I'm kind of always on the lookout for interesting information that I can bring into my books. So I think that having disparate hobbies or interests actually helps. Inform what you do is your career. I didn't realize that when I started, but um, Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. So young people just starting off in their careers or Just maybe you're an undergrad and you're not hundred percent sure what you want to do in life or like me As an undergrad you have an idea of I want to do a but your parents want you to do B I think it's important that you follow your passion And I say that from the perspective of having done that as a student, but also from the perspective as a parent, because our daughters are 29 years old and almost 26. And that was always my view with them. They are not me. They are not my husband. They are their own people. We should not try to make them go into any one direction. They're their own people, and they need to follow their own passion. And secondly, the other thing I learned from writing and, you know, from embarking on this textbook career is that life is not linear. And that's my little, you know, my little phrase with the math thrown in. But I really always, you know, because I'm a math person, I'm very, you know, structured, et cetera, I really, I think I always thought that life was linear. You know, I I had a plan. I was a girl with a plan. You know, I was going to go to school. I was going to teach high school. I was going to go back to school. I was going to teach college. And it all worked out that way. And then I got offered the opportunity to write a textbook. And that just blew everything up in a very good way. But it's still very scary. Embarking upon something you never thought about. And something that, honestly, when I sat down... To start writing after I signed my contract, I honestly thought to myself, I have no idea how to do this. And and seriously, like, I was a good writer, but I have no idea how to do this. And no one at McGraw-Hill helps you. Hmm. Sorry, McGraw-Hill, but that's true. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, you're on your own. And, you know, I had to figure it out for myself. And I did. And what I ended up doing was I said, okay, number one, I'm not going to start with chapter one. I'm going to start with the chapter that I think will be easiest for me to write, Hmm. because this way I will kind of get a system down and then I will go back to chapter one and go throughout the process. So that's what I did. And number two, I said to myself, well, I really don't know what I should do, so I'm going to write like I teach because that's what I know. And so that's how the prose sounds. You know, it sounds like a teacher is talking to you, which is what users of my books tell us. You know, that again, that wasn't my intent, but it was just that, okay, well, what do I do in the classroom? That's what I'm going to put on paper. So for example, instead of just saying, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this. I would say, I say in the book, something like, what do you think we do first? Right. Let's factor out the greatest common factor. What do you think the next step is? That's right. And etc. Because that's how I would engage my students in the classroom. I wouldn't just get up there and tell them what to do. I would throw questions out to them. And so that's how I wrote the books. The textbook writing blew out my theory that life is linear. One can have the best laid plans, you know, in front of them, and then something comes and just disrupts that, and it's scary. But, you know, again, I just thought, well, I have to try, because if I don't try, I'll always wonder what if. Mm-hmm. So now here we are, 15 15- Fifteen textbooks later. Wow, I was gonna ask. So and, <laughs> yeah, when mcgraw said, "When McGraw-Hill said, Sherry, you, we think you have a textbook in you." Little did they know. <laughs> fifteen. <laughs> yeah, so I've had I've had fifteen published, and three of them just recently came out in their second edition because we did end up. I had two separate series of books. We ended up merging them into a single series because now they all contain the, the study power. skills. Right. So the math is all the same, but now they contain the study skills. Right. So I want people to think about it. People who might be listening to this to to realize that follow your passion, you know, because you never know where that passion will lead you. And Life is not always linear, and that's not a bad thing. Sometimes it's exponential. <laughs> it's, so, it's so fun to talk to women who know math and can make silly puns like that. Oh yes, oh, we love puns on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> so much.
0: Um, well, I think it's time for our favorite segment, shameless plug time. Sally, you wanna you wanna start it off? Yeah, shameless plug time. Yes. This
1: is an opportunity. With no shame, to <laughs> yourself, your passions, your upcoming book that you haven't even written yet that we should all pre-order on Amazon when it <laughs> is written, um, your social media, like where can we buy your textbooks? And if listeners are like, oh, I'm never going to teach developmental math, but I am interested in the power method, which of your books should they buy on Amazon or wherever um, to learn the power method? Wow. Because we you know...
2: Textbooks oh, are expensive, but our can, listeners have money. You
0: can even shamelessly plug things that are totally unnoticed. Like your surf instructor. Yeah.
2: Good to <laughs> um, Well, all I'll say is that the second editions of my pre-algebra book, Introductory Algebra and Intermediate Algebra, they just recently came out. And then the fifth edition – of my initial book, my very, very first book that I started in 2004. Mm. I will be starting revisions on that in the summer, going into fifth edition. And if you are interested in finding out anything more, I think the easiest thing to do is to Google Power Math McGraw-Hill, or you could Google Messersmith Power Math, and you'll see plenty of things come up cool yeah so i think that's it awesome uh, wow well this has been
0: great having you this is amazing i, I think am all I of our educated listeners on yeah education i don't know <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's great
1: i think many listeners will relate to many of the things you've discussed so thank you so much oh this was amazing well thank yeah, you for having, having me so good. oh yeah all right <laughs> listeners um you do belong in science and you do belong in math you should follow this. I mean, you're listening to this podcast now, so subscribe to it. I don't know. <laughs> practice, and like, review. Subscribe <laughs> to us, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Right. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you.
0: Thank you. Now we're going to share our listener story, and we're really excited to hear how our listeners have felt belonging or disbelonging in science. So today's listener writes to us and says, As an entering graduate student at a top university, I was one of a few students from a liberal arts college. Professors seemed to hold this against me and made comments along the lines of, well, you're at such a disadvantage, or I didn't expect that much from you. One professor even told me directly that I didn't belong there. One of the things that helped me was connecting with an older student in my program who had also received his BS from a liberal arts school. We became fast friends, and he helped me navigate many of the ups and downs of grad school. So, yeah, that's awesome. Sally, what do you think about this? Okay, first of all, I'm very
1: sorry that this happened to you, and it really sucks, but I'm glad that it worked out well. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the keys that we again see in this listener letter, which has come up time and again, is peer support. Agreed. Yeah. And any peer can be supportive of you, but if you're in a particular situation, it can be very helpful to have another peer in a very similar situation. So for this listener, they connected with someone who also went to liberal arts school.
0: And it's not just that the other student knew what they were going through and could help them navigate, but just knowing that someone else has done it is somehow reassuring that right. you're experiencing something that's quote-unquote normal um, for somebody else. Yeah, someone else
1: has been there. And also for that, like, if you're going through a situation and you don't know anyone else in that situation, um, this might seem kind of silly, but I actually seriously think that you should get on Twitter because... There might not be another student who's at your same university in your same department going through the same thing as you at the same time, but someone from the giant world of science Twitter has experienced this. And so you can, even following them and like seeing their story and seeing that they've moved past the situation can be really helpful. Um, and if you join Twitter, follow us at Um But another thing I want to highlight from this letter, on a more serious note, is that once you're in the room, you do belong there. And I know we have an entire episode on imposter syndrome and we know how toxic that that can be. Um, But professors, it is not your job to tell students that they do not belong in the graduate program that they are already in.
0: Yeah, that that decision has been made. Yes. That ship has sailed. This is
1: not the time. And like, sure, there's serious cases where like something goes really wrong and Mm -hmm. one graduate student per year drops out of the thing. But this is not what we're talking about, okay? This is just a professor who was just like, you don't belong here because of where you come from. And that's BS. So Mm -hmm. professors, no. And I think that this letter was from a student who was talking about this experience because of where they went to college. Mm -hmm. But I think that this could have been written by anyone in regards to any aspect of their identity, Mm -hmm. whether it was ethnic background, socioeconomic status, gender identity. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? So,
0: Also, how do you feel about getting that kind of but I can't compliment. I didn't expect that much from you.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> anyway. Professors, you might think
1: it's a compliment. It's not a compliment. Similar to along the lines of when a professor tells an undergraduate student like, oh, grad school's really hard. Every single undergraduate student who hears that from a respected professor is going to think that the professor is saying, grad school is really hard and it's too hard for you and I don't think that you should go to graduate school. I know multiple people who are not in graduate school right now for this reason.
2: Hmm.
0: yeah so
1: professors like everything that you say to a student even if you're not like telling them directly you don't belong here student like your words are very meaningful to students so
0: yeah and especially on that kind of comment like you mentioned graduate school is hard do you think you can follow up with that even is that salvageable with like but you can do it like, you're the person to do it. I don't know. Yeah. That's a totally I, I, different story.
1: Yeah. But professors who are like, oh, graduate school's hard. I would think twice before applying. That's different. That's different. Just leaving mm-hmm. it
0: hanging is is sending a different message. Yep. So thank
1: you for sharing your story with us. And other listeners, we welcome your story to be mm-hmm. shared on this podcast. Um, you can go to devilshelix.com and there's a form or you can call our voicemail phone number, 415 895 0850. 415-895-0850. That's a US-based phone number, so I guess put a 1 in front. And you do belong in science. Yeah, you do. Yes. Awesome. Cool.
0: We hope you enjoyed that episode. That was awesome. And we also hope you enjoyed our listener story. Thank you again to the listener. So, you know, now comes the fun part where we get to we get to talk about how excited we are about this podcast. Um, um, so I'm let's excited. yeah let's let's give a shout out to all the people that help make it possible. First of all to our support through Penn Bioengineering and through the Berkeley Student Tech Fund. Uh, our podcast logo and our awesome stickers um, coming from Gustavo Villarreal at Wiki Rascals on Twitter.
1: If you go to our website doublehelix.com, we have all kinds of resources including links to all of the episodes all of our show notes. You can download a copy of our flyer. You can submit your listener story, which you should totally do because we need more to share on the episodes, you guys. You can also view our beautiful portraits that look extremely professional taken by Kaz Lewis at Kaz Lewis on Instagram. Thank you, Kaz. Also, we mentioned we still have lots of double shillings and You Do Belong in science stickers to give out. So please, if you know us personally, like I almost always have all the stickers with me at all times, so just like shoot me an email. We can uh, meet up. If you kind of know us or you know, you're know you also at Berkeley and want some, podcast at gmail.com. If you live out there beyond where we can meet you, um, sign up on our website, doublesheelix.com slash stickers. And there's like a form, and Kayla will mail them to your house.
0: And for those of you who have requested them, we heard you, and we are so excited, and they are coming. So, you know, be excited and check your mailbox. Yes, definitely. And um, so if you like this episode, we... Totally recommend going back to episode called Battle Imposter Syndrome and Writing as Part of Science. It will talk about the experiencing imposter syndrome, what to do about it, and has some really awesome writing tips, which I think you will all enjoy. And it's
1: like totally connected to this episode because our listener story wasn't about imposter syndrome and our Sherry story was about writing. I mean, in part, she's a professional writer. But also mathematicians. So anyway, look at that. It's look episode at that. three, way back in the feed. We were like much less profesh, but our yeah. thoughts were still equally fire emoji. <laughs> Probably we were like less contained back then. So if the back and forth kind of banter <laughs> is your favorite part of these episodes, then our early episodes you're going to find as a true gold mine, especially episode number three, yeah. battling imposter syndrome <laughs> slash slash writing is part of science.
0: Yeah. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, you will. Um, all
1: right. Any other plugs here? Oh, the final plug. So, as we always tell you, we have a lot of help, but mostly this podcast is Kayla and me, PhD students, pity us, working on this in our free time. So, we really appreciate any support you can get by shouting us out on social media. Please yes. rate and review us on iTunes. Um, nothing makes me happier than when I see a new review on the iTunes store. It makes me so happy. It's true. And people from my lab, like, made all their usernames related to our research. <laughs>
0: So. so it's just like your whole lab could write in and take up all those usernames that have yeah. not been...
1: Yeah, like mechanobiologists, something, something, and like the Ooh. organism that we're... Anyway, this is
0: getting off track. Okay. Please. <laughs> you can support us by reviewing us, yeah. rating us, and giving us shout outs in the social media world. And like tell your friends about this podcast.
1: Oh, yeah. we have a beautiful flyer. Um, I know I've said before, and I will say again, it's the best flyer I've ever seen made by Kayla... <laughs> doubleshelix.com slash flyer print it out put it up in your elevator spread the good word about doubleshelix um mm-hmm. this is our middleest most episode
0: wow that's crazy. of this series
1: but don't worry like we're gonna keep having episodes after this month it just yes. won't be as often we're just I excited guess, yeah it's gonna be amazing <laughs> okay okay uh, oh, we also have a mailing list if you want to get the yes. first and hottest, freshest news pre-Twitter, so. We
0: promise not to spam you, because we don't even have that kind of time, so. <laughs> yeah, we don't have
1: time to spam you, okay? So, like, we've sent one email to the mailing list, and it was like, here's a link to get stickers. Yeah, exactly. So, we don't have time. <laughs> yep. Alright, thanks for listening. You guys are the best. Yeah, you are, especially if you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> you do belong in science. Yes, you do. Alright, subscribe, rate, review. This is just the Free.